It's great. Good, good stuff coming up this week in missions. Come tonight for the great get together. We get to hear some testimonies of people who have come to the Lord and just really have some great times. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter two, where we're going to be finishing up Luke two, unless the rapture happens in the next hour, which is fine with me. Uh, Maybe I could finish this in heaven. But if it doesn't happen, we'll finish it here. Have you ever noticed anything unique about the different pictures of Jesus that you see on Christmas cards? And, you know, if you go to a museum, a lot of the, the artwork that happened during the you know 16th and 17th century, they, a lot of pictures of Jesus and his life and scenes with the disciples. And when you look at them, they have something in common. Jesus is always glowing. He's always has a a halo over his head or there's kind of light radiating from him. And pretty much every picture you see of him is that way. He kind of has this other worldly look about him, Uh, you know, kind of a angel with uh, glory streaming from him. And uh, this is kind of the idea that we have in our minds sometimes when we think about Jesus. He kind of walked around like a light bulb. He was. He was glowing all the time, like someone dipped him in uh, that uh, glow-in-the-dark paint. And, of course, what aids this and and makes us think this way also is the scriptures, which talk about Jesus as the light of the world, the light of men, as a light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He is the light to the Gentiles. And so that is often used of Jesus. In addition to that... We have, uh, um, through the centuries, uh, Christianity has had many attacks against Jesus's deity. Many people have come against uh, what the scriptures teach about the deity of Christ. They have attacked him uh, and said, oh, he's just a man or the God's spirit came upon him or he was a really good uh, preacher or teacher or even a prophet, but he wasn't God almighty. He was God with a little G and there are all sorts of heresies have sprung up through the ages. And because of this, um, the church has really fought to protect this central doctrine. And the reason they have is Jesus said in John eight twenty four, unless you believe that I am the ago of me, the great I am, you will die in your sins. This is no doctrine to mess with. I don't care what you believe about Jesus that is right. If you don't understand that he's God or you reject the fact that he's God, you cannot get to heaven. And because all the artwork that we see and because of the scriptures and because of the church's rigorous defense of the deity of Jesus through the ages, oftentimes Jesus's deity has been way overemphasized and his humanity has been altogether neglected. I think most Christians would be quick to say, oh, yeah, Jesus was 100 percent God and 100 percent man. But most of the time, when you start talking about Jesus and you start talking about his humanity, people start feeling uncomfortable. That keeps going through their mind. But he was God. But he was God. Well, I want you this morning to remember he was man. He was man. Because that is the whole theme of Luke's gospel. Luke's purpose is to let us know that Jesus was the son of man. He wasn't only the son of God. He was the son of man. And so because that is Luke's theme, Luke is working hard to let us know that Jesus was human in every way. And so if you have your Bibles, you can look at Luke chapter two, verse thirty nine 
and follow along as we read through verse 52. 39 begins, when he had performed everything, when they, that is Joseph and Mary, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, Why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, from Luke chapter two, verse thirty nine through fifty two, I want to show you three encouraging things about Jesus's life as a human here on earth that will be good examples for you. Things you need to know and things which will help you better live for the glory of God in light of them. And the first thing is this. Jesus grew up just like you did. Look at verse 39. This is kind of a transition verse. This could go with the verses that precede or can kind of be a transition verse to verse 40. And that's how we're using it. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And if we remember a couple of weeks back when we looked, we talked about Joseph and Mary, how they did all those things according to the law. They fulfilled everything that they were supposed to fulfill uh, just for themselves as parents, but also everything in relationship to Jesus. And Luke's whole purpose is to say, listen, his parents did everything they were supposed to do according to the law of the Lord. And then they returned home to Nazareth, Nazareth. Now, we have already learned that Joseph was a righteous man, that Mary had found favor with God. And this, of course, is evident in their obedience to the law. And, of course, they didn't obey the law out of pharisaical hypocrisy, but they loved the Lord. And they were just good, godly parents trying to do what was best. But then Luke mentions that they returned to Galilee, to the city of Nazareth. And this poses a problem. Because if you remember Matthew's account, what happened? Jesus was born and then the Magi showed up. And when they showed up, Jesus was living in Bethlehem in a house. Well, the problem now we look here and we see that after his circumcision, after he was named, after they had offered sacrifices for themselves and for Jesus, then 
The parents returned to Nazareth. Well, how could they be in Nazareth and Bethlehem at the same time? Well, some have tried to insert um, some information in between uh, the middle in the middle of verse 39, where it says um, uh, they did everything according to the law of the Lord. And then they try and in that little white space before they they've tried to insert. Well, Jesus at that time um, uh, lived in Bethlehem and then the Magi came and then Joseph was warned and then they fled to Egypt and then Hotter, uh, Herod slaughtered the children. Then he later died. Then they came back and tried to settle on the land. Then another dream. And then they moved to Nazareth in there. Which very well could be. It could be that uh, Luke, for some reason, didn't think this was a significant thing to mention. And so he just launched off and just kind of connected to the ending place of where Jesus ended up because he wanted to focus on his years growing up, not necessarily uh, the whole Herod and Magi and flight into Egypt thing. But probably the better way to understand it is just like the text says. When Jesus was eight days old, they fulfilled the law and they went to Nazareth. Because remember, when the census came, they they most likely didn't bring all of their possessions down from Nazareth during such a busy time of the year because they didn't even have a place to stay. And if they had all their possessions, where would they put them? Most likely they had made arrangements and decided to move to Bethlehem, moved back, went back to Nazareth, gathered all their things, then moved back down to Bethlehem where they were living. Of course, when the Magi came, Jesus was living in a house. He wasn't in a manger in a stable. He was in a house. And so we know that they had been there for some time. We also know that from what the Magi had told Herod about the appearing of the star, that Jesus was probably somewhere between about one or two years old because Herod slaughtered all the children two years old and under. Remember that? And so we can be fairly certain that within that two-year time period, Joseph and Mary moved down from uh, Nazareth back to Bethlehem and settled there permanently. Of course, when the Magi came and the, Joseph got his dream, they would fl- fly to Egypt to escape uh, the persecution. And then later on would come back after Herod had died. But then the angel would say, hey, don't don't settle here. I want you to go to Nazareth, which is a very strange place because Nazareth was such a an insignificant place, a, a bad place. It was the bad part of the country. In other words, uh, you, you remember what um, what. Uh, Nathaniel said to Philip in John 146, can any good thing come from Nazareth? And the applied answer is not that we know of. It was the bad part of the country. H.A. Ironside, who was a famous preacher, told of an incident where he and his wife uh, went to Israel. This was in 1936. They went to Israel and they were touring around and they ended up going to Nazareth, and they were there uh, looking around at all the poverty, at all the people who were just just without hope. There were um, open trenches with uh, raw sewage flowing through them. The whole town stunk. The people were in poverty. And uh, at one point, uh, Harry Ironside left his wife in the street just looking at all this, and he scampered over to look at another site. When he came back, he found his wife weeping, and he asked her what was wrong. And she looked at him and said this, can it really be that the Lord of all was here? And, you know, even though that incident happened some 2000 years after Jesus was there, even in Jesus's day, the common understanding was, could any good thing come out of Nazareth? And the answer was, sure. Sure. 
that's where Jesus came. He lived there. He grew up there in a bad place, a bad place that had really been despised by most of the Jews. And it's interesting, and we can only guess at why God did that. Why didn't he have Jesus settle in Bethlehem and grow up in the city of David and be close to Jerusalem and, you know, have all that exposure? It's, I think it's part of it's because of God wanted to make this part of Jesus' humiliation. But I think also um, it, it helped, it helped Jesus's identity to be hidden from those who would not receive him. Because later on, when they would search, and they'd say, well, this guy's a Nazarene. I mean, we know the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth, but they never asked him where he was born. They just assumed he was born there. And this is exactly what Luke tells us as we look at the text, that Jesus did grow up in Nazareth. And this is what he says if you look at verse 40. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This is Luke's summary statement of the first 12 years of Jesus' life. First, he grew up physically, like all people. Jesus grew up physically. This is pretty much a given. You feed your child, they grow up. Sometimes you wish you didn't have to feed them as much, but you do, and when you do, they grow. That's normal. And when they grow up physically, they also increase in spiritual strength. And this is just a given. When your child grows up physically, they usually grow up in strength. And there's not anything you can do about that. Really, it just happens automatically. Third, Luke points out that Jesus increased in wisdom. Now, wisdom is something that a lot of times we don't really understand in our culture, because usually if somebody is a wise guy, that's not a very good Um, comment to make about somebody if you say in in a different way oh that person's very wise uh, a lot of times we think they know a lot of things but that's true wisdom does mean that you know things but wisdom is not just knowing things wisdom is knowing things and being able to apply them you know it's like uh me giving you a manual for how to fly you know a 747 and you read it now you have that knowledge But if I was going to fly in a 747, I wouldn't want you to be the pilot. (laughs) I would want somebody with wisdom. I would want somebody who had studied the manual and had, you know, a thousand hours or whatever flying one of those things. And so wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge. And, you know, growing up, there is a sense that we, you know, we get some wisdom. I mean, you know, you hit your, your finger and realize that hurts and you don't want to do it again. I mean, there's common horse sense that we gain and grow in at just growing up. And that's true. But I think what's happening here is what's being emphasized is not just worldly wisdom, but spiritual wisdom, wisdom that comes from the word of God. And we will see this as we look at the illustration that Luke gives about Jesus's life. Here, Jesus is a model for all of us. Ironically, though he was God and though he was the author of the scriptures in his humanity, Jesus had to learn the word of God. He had to study hard so he could get a grasp of the scriptures And whether you are young or old, this process should never stop. Some of you younger people need to realize that 
the most opportune time for you to learn the scriptures is now. Well, of course, we all need to always be doing it. But when you're young, your minds are soft. You learn things easier. I think my Hebrew professor said it's 10 times easier to learn Hebrew when you're a teenager than if you're in your 30s or 40s. 10 times easier. See, when you're young, your minds are soft. Your minds are like a sponge. They soak up things a lot easier and you remember them for a lot longer. I remember uh, when I was growing up, you know, my dad saying things like, don't forget this. And I wouldn't, you know, yeah, remember this number. I wouldn't. I didn't know what the number, some phone number or something. And then my dad would say, what's the number? Out it came. Your minds are like a sponge. But then when you get into your, your 30s, your mind becomes like a block of wood. <laughs> and then if you want to put any truth in there, you have to pound it in. And then when you get into your 50s and 60s, it becomes like a brick. A decaying brick. And, you know, you have to soak in something a long time for anything to get in there. And so Jesus here at a very young age is a good example for young people and that he was making an effort to grow in wisdom. Wisdom doesn't happen by accident. This kind of wisdom, worldly wisdom comes naturally. Godly wisdom comes by effort. By constantly looking at the word of God, studying the word of God, reading the word of God, talking about the word of God and applying the word of God. And Luke also adds, fourthly, that God's grace was on Jesus. We know that John, in the Gospel of John, speaking of Jesus, said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 is a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Of course, this was before Jesus was born. And Isaiah prophesies to let us know a little bit about Jesus and then goes on to explain how he will rule in his kingdom. And Isaiah chapter 11, in the first couple verses, we have what is called the the often referred to as the sevenfold spirit upon the person of Jesus And in verse one, we read this and a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. You remember Ruth and Boaz and Boaz was born Obed and Obed, Jesse and Jesse, David. And of course, down David's line, King David's line to Jesus. That's what it's being referred to here. This uh, shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And notice this, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. And then it goes on to say, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And then he talks about how he will rule. Verse five, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. And so this is describing some of what Jesus was like. Jesus was endowed with the special grace of God. And that's what Luke is wanting to point out here. So Luke is talking about two different aspects of Jesus, his spiritual growth in stature and his spiritual growth in physical strength and his 
spiritual growth in wisdom and his spiritual endowment with the grace of God. And so he's trying to show that Jesus was growing both physically and spiritually. Nonetheless, Jesus had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. His mother had to feed him, you know, open up. You know, all those little things you do with your children that if anybody ever took a video of it, you'd be embarrassed about later. But it works at the time. It seems like a good idea. And Jesus had to do all the same things that we had to do as far as growing up. He had to learn all those same things. And it would be interesting babysitting Jesus, wouldn't it? I mean, think about that. The creator of the universe learning how to walk, God Almighty learning how to talk, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, learning how to obey. And it's not that Jesus ever disobeyed, but he did learn how to obey nonetheless. As he learned the word of God, he learned how to submit himself to the word of God. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5.8 that Jesus even learned obedience through the things he suffered. And it's amazing to even think about that. You say, how could these things be? He was God. That's the whole point. He was man. Just as much as he was God. And this is, whole, this is Luke's whole emphasis in the gospel. We're going to see it over and over again. Jesus, though 100% God, was also 100% man. And if you can't understand that, welcome to the club. It's just the way it is. Jesus had every attribute of God and every attribute of man. And while he lived his life here on earth... He chose not to exercise his divine attributes in submission to the Father's will. So he never ceased being God. He just didn't use the attributes, his divine attributes. He only used his human attributes, except when the Father's will was different. And when he was born in his humanity, he knew nothing. As a human, he was weak. He was a helpless little baby, just like you and just like me. And part of his coming to earth, part of his humility, made laying aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He chose to grow up just like you and me. Of course, without sin. But being God, he could not sin. He would not sin. But Jesus learned how to obey as he learned the scriptures. He increased in submission to them. And... What we learn from these first two verses is that Jesus grew up just like you and I did. He grew, grew spiritually and he grew physically. He grew spiritually because he worked at it. He grew spiritual or physically because he ate. And that's how it works. Secondly, we can learn not only that Jesus grew up just like us, but you parents need to realize that Obeying God's word in relationship to yourself and your children is very important. We see Joseph and Mary doing that in the text. But you need to remember not to sacrifice your child's spiritual health on the altar of ease and convenience. Dads, you need to remember to be the spiritual leaders of your home. This doesn't mean you're going to do everything, but what it does is you're going to make sure everything is done that needs to be done in relationship to your children. 
Third, children, you need to learn from Jesus' example and work at growing in wisdom, which comes from the word of God. And if you are listening to me now, you're accountable. You have to do this. You don't get to opt out of obeying God. You have to study God's word. You have to read God's word. You have to meditate on God's word. You need to learn to be disciplined and having quiet times and studying and put yourself in environments where you are going to be saturated in the scriptures because this is God's will for your life. And you can't stand before God and say, well, hey, my parents were imperfect. Jesus's parents were imperfect. But you know what? Your parents can't obey for you. Your parents can say, do it this way, and you'll get in trouble if you don't, and discipline you, and exhort you, and rebuke you, and correct you, but you have to do it. You have to do it. You have to obey your parents, because when you obey your parents, you're obeying God, and this is God's will for every child. Fourth, and most encouraging, is this. God's grace rests upon his children. You know, you might read a text like this and say, wow, it must have been great to be Jesus and to have God's grace resting upon you. I mean, that must have made it really easy for him. Well, listen, in John chapter one, verse 16, John says of believers for of his fullness, we have all received in grace upon grace. That's pretty much grace. Grace stacked upon grace or piled upon grace. Romans 5, 2 says, if you are a believer, you stand in grace. Romans 5, 17 and 20 say, if you are a believer, you have received an abundance of grace that is superabounding grace. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, the scriptures tell you, you have the riches of God's grace lavished upon you. The point is this. You have God's grace, too, if you are one of God's children. Remember last week what we learned from Dr. Mack? That when you are a believer, you are adopted into the family of God, which gives you all the rights and privileges that full-blooded family members receive. So if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been adopted into the family of God and you have super abundant, lavished upon you grace upon grace. And so you, just like Jesus, are living with God's grace upon you. But growing in godliness is a hard task in this world. But God's grace is sufficient for you. It gives you everything you need for life and godliness. Now, you parents might think that raising a perfect child would be all fun and games with no problems or pain. And this brings us to our second point. Jesus caused even his parents grief, just like you did. Of course, Jesus never sinned, but he did cause his parents grief. And it is true that at every age, Jesus was perfect for whatever that age was if he was two he was a perfect two-year-old if he was four he was a perfect four-year-old nevertheless he caused his parents grief and luke out of all the stories he could have given us about jesus's life must have taken this one episode which he probably got from talking to jesus's mother mary this one episode is the only one he includes in the scriptures Look at verse 41. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. 
Now, you didn't need to know that it was required for all the Jewish males to go to the three pilgrim feasts, uh, the Feast of the Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, because people um, uh, were required there. They would travel, and that's why they became known as pilgrimage feasts, because they would travel to Jerusalem. All the people from Israel would travel to attend these feasts in Jerusalem. And Luke tells us that Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year. For the Passover feast, which tells us they were very faithful to the law of Moses. And this was a hardship. I mean, you know, we think, oh, yeah, well, you know, I just have to drive there. They had to walk. Most people weren't rich enough to have animals they could ride on and, you know, big carts and things, you know, chariots. They they just walked. So they had to walk all the way down from north, from Nazareth, all the way down to Jerusalem. And they had to do that at their own expense and stay in Jerusalem for a week or eight days at their own expense and then travel back at their own expense and neglect everything at home while they were gone. And this was a hardship, but God promised that his grace would be sufficient. And so we see from here, first of all, that they every year they came to celebrate the Passover, which, of course, was the feast where they would celebrate God's redeeming of Israel from the land of Egypt. And after they had that first Passover meal, the Seder meal, the next week was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which they only ate unleavened bread, uh, dry, crackly bread, um, in accordance with what God had told them when they were leaving the land of Egypt. And the women were not required to come to these feasts, but they often did. Look at verse 42. And when he, Jesus became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. Now, we don't know if this was Jesus's first time, but the way Luke records it, it probably was his first time. It was hard to travel with young children, so you might leave them behind with grandma or whatever, a relative or a friend, because walking really far with a small child is a task. I mean, it's hard to even push them around in a cart all day and with wheels on it. But what's interesting here is Jesus was 12. And oftentimes uh, um, fathers would take their 12-year-old sons to Jerusalem the year before uh, they were to be 13. Because at 13, they were then responsible on their own to make sure they attended um, all the feasts and kept all the law of God. And so this was the father's way of saying, son... Come with me. I'm going to show you the ropes. And after this, you'll be responsible for this time on to make sure you get here, even if I die, to make sure you celebrate the feast and make sure you do what is right according to the law of Moses. And so Jesus now, um, on the verge of becoming uh, the son of the covenant, is being taken by his father and mother to celebrate the Passover, possibly his first one ever. Look at verse 43. And as they were returning from the Passover feast, now he doesn't go into the Passover feast at all, but this must have been a very significant time, especially if this was Jesus's first time. Imagine walking into the temple Mount for the first time. I mean, the structure was huge and magnificent. And then to see all of those Passover lambs all slayed simultaneously, all of their blood drained out and flowing through channels carved in the rock out of the temple mount and just all the priests offering the blood on the altar for these many, many sacrifice all at one time. 
It must have been incredible. And you, you wonder how much Jesus understood about his identity at that time when he saw all those lambs slain for the sin of those people. It was an incredible time, even if it wasn't his first time. But they did that. And after spending the full number of days, which have been seven days after the Passover for the feast of the unleavened bread, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in a caravan. Now, just stop there for a moment and think about this. You know, let's say you went to a big city with uh, with uh, your your 12 year old son. I have one um, where, you know, you you go there, you do some things and then you just leave your child there. That doesn't seem right, does it? You think you don't just forget your son and leave him behind. I mean, what's going on there? How could you forget him? Is Luke recording a parental neglect here? No, that would not fit the clear description of Joseph and Mary being very godly and very obedient to the law of God, of course, they would never purposely abandon their 12-year-old son in Jerusalem. I grew up as the youngest of eight children, and and there were times when my mom would pile us all in the station wagon and take us to the store. And uh, there were times when, you know, she'd be checking out all the groceries, and as she would get all done, we'd all pile in the car, and she would drive home. But one of my brothers, my older brothers, would have been distracted looking at the candy aisle or the toy aisle, looking at all those things they wish they could buy. And my wife would, or my mom would get halfway home and she would stop and realize, where's Tim? Where's Jimmy? Where's Kevin? And she would frantically realize they were not in the car. She had left them behind. And so she, you know, turn around, drive like a maniac back to the store. And you know, it goes through a mother's mind. Oh, my son's running through the store, screaming hysterically. My mother's abandoned me. She would come to the store and my brothers would be standing on the curb calm. Because it had happened so many times. And of course, you know what goes through a mother's mind. She pictures this terrified child screaming, feeling abandoned, feeling hurt, feeling unloved, you know, predators, whatever. And I'm sure that's happened with Mary. My mom never did this on purpose. Nevertheless, she did do this enough times to where my brothers got used to it. I mean, they never did this. It never happened to me, but I was so cute. They never left me behind. (laughs) Actually, I couldn't walk, so it was hard to wander away. (laughs) But this is the same kind of thing that's going on in this text right here. What you need to understand is after these pilgrim feasts were over, everybody would have to wander home. And there was only a few roads to do this. There was like a main highway on the ridges in the mountainous ridges running from Jerusalem north. And so pretty much anybody who had to go north, anywhere north, would all travel on this one road. So there would be a lot of people, a huge caravan of people that would just flow north. 
And then after about a day, when all the, the mothers would get tired of carrying their babies and children and all their things, they would stop and set up camp, sleep there, and then do it again another day. And people would slowly be peeling off to wherever they lived along the way. And it was common at that first day for the the mothers to leave early with the children and they would head off and then the dads would stay around, get a little male bonding in, and then they would head off and meet up with the family that first night. And this is apparently what happened. If you look at verse 44, Luke goes on to say, Jesus' parents went a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. Apparently, Joseph got up to where Mary's camp was, kept talking and looking for his wife on the way as they were camped along the road. And uh, finally got there to where his wife was and said, where's Jesus? I don't know. I thought he was with you. (laughs) No. He's not with me. We've lost the Messiah. You know, I mean, that was that would be terrifying. But you can see how it happened because Jesus had never disobeyed his parents. Jesus was perfectly obedient. He was a very reliable child. He was perfectly reliable. And he never did anything to cause them to distrust him in any way. And since he was 12, and since this was probably his first Passover, Mary, when she was getting ready to head north with the other women, probably thought, well, Jesus is with his dad. And so she takes off thinking, well, he'll find his dad. His dad will bring him up. Well, of course, when Joseph gets ready to leave, he's thinking, well, Jesus must be with his mother. And so then he hoops it up there and finds Mary and, oh, our son's gone. So they probably stayed that night. The next day, they walked all the way back, looked around Jerusalem, spent the night there. The next day, they looked for him some more, and then they finally found him. Look at verse 46. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Teachers would sit around the perimeter of the temple mount. There was like coverings there and they would sit down and students would gather around them and they would dialogue and have question and answer and say, you know, what does this scripture say? And what does this mean? Or what does the law say? And through question and answers, they would dialogue and that's how they would learn the scriptures. And this is what Jesus was doing. He's in the very public place out in the open, learning from the rabbis. And Luke points out, that those who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. They were amazed. And the word amazed is a very strong word. It means to be beside oneself, to be astonished or thrown into a state of shock. Here's this 12-year-old boy, and you know this, Jesus never interpreted any scripture wrong. He was a perfect interpreter. And so here these rabbis are going, well, here's a scripture. What do you think of this, young man? Perfect interpretation, perfect insight. I mean, wouldn't that be great? I'm I'm looking forward to this when I get to heaven. Sitting down and asking Jesus all the things I don't know, which will take a long time. And here, Jesus is just sitting there. He's dialoguing with these scholars. And they are just amazed because he has such perfect clarity. Now, he has God's spirit in the fullest of measures. He doesn't have any sin, any selfishness, any sin nature blocking his understanding. And he just is able to see things exactly like they are. And they're all just amazed at his insight and his answers. 
Look at verse 48. And when they, Joseph and Mary, saw him, they were astonished. Now, just stop there for a second. Why were they astonished? Well, Jesus wasn't crying. He wasn't running through the streets of Jerusalem. My parents have left me. He wasn't all stressed out and huddled in a ball crying. And somebody saying, oh, it's okay, young man. It's okay. He was calmly sitting among the teachers in the temple without a hint of anxiety. He's a good example, isn't he? Even at 12, he's a good example. He's not even anxious at 12 because we know the Bible says anxiety and worry are sins. Of course, Jesus, being sinless, was not anxious. He was just trusting in God's sovereignty. My parents left me. I think I'll go to the temple. But this surely compounded Mary's exasperation because Mary didn't know what it was like to be sinful. Mary was frantically looking for Jesus. And, you know, they're looking around and you can imagine the whole way down to Jerusalem. I hope he's okay. I hope he's not crying. I hope he's, you know, not worried. I hope he's getting fed. I hope, you know, you know how it is when you're a mother and a father and you're looking for your lost son. And you're looking and looking and looking. You're getting tired. And then you go to the Temple Mount and there he is and he's calm. He's not crying. He's not anxious. He's not hysterical. He's just talking about the scriptures. Look at the middle of verse 48. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And the word anxiously, as the New American Standard Bible translates it, is a word that describes intense pain or sorrow or grief or distress. Literally, Mary said, in anguish and distress, we've been looking for you, which is normal to understand that they would be worried about their son. Stand before the Lord at Judgment Day. Lord, we're so sorry we've lost the Messiah. Now. Remember, up to this point, Mary was never accustomed or Joseph was ever accustomed to anything like this. They told Jesus, take out the trash, take out the trash, clean your room, clean your room, pick up your Legos, did it. He never disobeyed. He never even hinted at disobeying. Perfectly submissive. Weed the flower bed, did it. But imagine the exasperation you would feel in your son your perfectly reliable son if he was lost you couldn't find him you raced all around and there he was he was just sitting among some scholars talking about the bible and he wasn't even worried he wasn't even sinning because he couldn't find you you'd probably want to grab god almighty the creator of the universe by the shoulders and say, son, that is interesting, isn't it? That sounds almost blasphemous, doesn't it? Very interesting to think about. Jesus was Lord. He was the creator. He was the sovereign of men and angels, had every right to tell his parents to do anything he wanted them to do. He had created his parents in the universe and all that is in it. And yet he was also a son, a son of man. And because of that, his parents had to talk to him. His parents had to 
tell him what to do. And he had to do it. He had to do it. And notice Jesus' reply in verse 49. And he said to them, why is it that you are looking for me? That seems like a no-brainer question, doesn't it? Because we love you. Because we're worried sick about you. Because we care for you. Because you're our son. Because we lost you. I mean, what do you, why do you ask us a question like that? But see, Jesus' emphasis was not on give me the reasons for why you are looking for me. His emphasis in the Greek is why were you looking for me implied all around Jerusalem. Why were you running here and for to and fro looking for me? Did you not know? Look at the text. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house and keep in mind that these are the first words of Jesus recorded in the scriptures. Why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? The Greek literally reads, did you not know that I had to be in my father's? And that's it. There's no thing put on the end there. So most people have dis- interpreted it to one of two ways, either in my father's business or my father's house. And since he was in the house of the Lord, that's the translation most people have. Didn't you know that? If my earthly father had left me behind, I would go to my heavenly father's house and hang out there, the most public place. Jesus was not disobeying his parents. I mean, what if your child had been left behind by accident somewhere? What would you want them to do? You'd want them to find some responsible adults. You'd want them to be in a public place, a safe place. And you'd want them sitting down talking about the scriptures. I mean, isn't that, wasn't that like the most ideal thing you could think about? You leave your child at Disneyland, you come back, and there they are by the gate having a little Bible study <laughs> with John MacArthur or somebody. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. That's about the best thing you could do. And so that's what Jesus did. He goes to the Temple Mount. He goes to his father's house. He sits down with the teachers of Israel. He has a Bible study with them. His mom comes, she's all fretting and worrying, sinning, and says, what's wrong with you? He says, well, mom, you did leave me behind. I'm just sitting here and studying the scriptures. And why were you looking everywhere for me? You should have known that I would have gone to my father's house. And there's a play on words here, isn't there? Your father and I were looking for you. Jesus says, oh, but I was in my father's house. But the text says... In verse 50, they did not understand the statement which he had made known to them. That is, they're thinking in themselves, what do you mean your father's house? We live in Nazareth. We don't live here in the Temple Mount. And they just quite didn't understand. It seems that God had protected them or hidden the reality of Jesus because this would be stressy, wouldn't it? I mean, what if you were... If you understood just who Jesus was, your God almighty creator of the universe stuffed in that body, you know, the infinite God, the sovereign Lord of all that 12 year old son that could you imagine how unnerving that would be? Uh, would you like to take out the trash? Maybe you would like to me to do it for you. You know, do you, would you like to come to dinner? Is this good for you? I mean, that would be hard, wouldn't it? It would be very unnerving to know who that was. It would be hard. It would be very hard. But 
There's some things we can learn here. One, don't worry or fret. We see that in Jesus' life. Two, redeem the time. Even though Jesus was left behind, he wasn't wasting his time. He went and studied the scriptures. Three, make sure you are about your father's business. All of us who know Jesus Christ need to be about our father's business. This is why we're here on earth, isn't it? You bet. And then the last part, we learn this. Third point, Jesus had to submit to his parents. Look at verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them and his mother. And the whole point is his mother treasured all these things in her heart, just wondering about all this, that here Jesus, the Messiah-to-be, was in subjection to his earthly parents, and he kept on being in subjection is what the text is saying. You know, Jesus did what he was supposed to do. Even though his parents were imperfect, even though he grew up in an imperfect world. And there's something to learn here for parents and younger people. If you're a parent, you need to remember your responsibility is to get your child to learn how to obey you. This isn't an option with God. Children are commanded to obey their parents. Therefore, it's the parent's responsibility to teach them to obey and to submit and to follow them. You do not let your child have their own way. You make sure they have your way. Proverbs 29.15 says, But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. You let your child have their own way, they will bring shame to you. You make them submit to you. This is God's will. And it's the child's responsibility, if you're a younger person, to submit to your parents... Because God's word commands you to children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Ephesians 6 1 and parents, you make sure they do. That's your responsibility as a parent. But Jesus was perfect, yet he still submitted to imperfect parents. Finally, Luke sums up everything in verse 52 and says, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. This is a very similar verse to verse 40, summarizing the last 18 years of Jesus' life from that point on. Jesus kept growing spiritually and physically, and Jesus increased in favor with God and men. I mean, of course, he was one of those kids you just wish your kids would hang out with. I mean, he's one of those kids that grown-ups love to be around. He was perfect. Never did anything wrong. So as you leave here today, think about these things. When you pray, when you talk to Jesus, remember, he knows what it is like to grow up. Secondly, parents, commit yourself to being a godly examples for your children and raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Third, children, follow Jesus' example. Trust God. Obey your parents. Grow. Work hard at growing in spiritual wisdom and knowledge. And may all of us take every pain to be about our Father's business because this is God's will for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this text is so loaded with goodies, so many incredible things to think about that Jesus, the Lord of all, was once a baby, helpless, needing to learn how to talk and walk and grow in the scriptures and grow in obedience. And Father, learn how to do all of those things that we are still learning how to do. Father, we thank you that he can relate to us, that he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin and knows how It is to grow up in a sin-cursed world. Father, help us to be about your business. Help us to obey our parents. If we are young people, help us to be good parents if we are parents. And Father, we just want to give you all the glory and honor and praise because of these things. 
In Christ's name, amen.